KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Sometimes there's just too much good stuff to cover. So this week, I'm going to talk with a pair of filmmakers from wildly divergent films. But what makes them fun to combine into one podcast is that one is a real documentary and one is a fake documentary. Adam Nimoy has created an intimate and fascinating documentary about his famous father, Leonard Nimoy, and the iconic character of Spock that his dad created on the original Star Trek TV series. Matt Johnson, on the other hand, has created a clever and often hilarious mockumentary called Operation Avalanche about two young CIA agents who create footage of a fake lunar landing for NASA in 1967. But both films serve up great cinematic experiences for filmgoers, so don't miss either one. First, let's talk about For the Love of Spock, the documentary Adam Nimoy began making with his father about the famous character created by Gene Roddenberry for the Star Trek TV series in the 1960s. Adam Nimoy will be in San Diego on September 21st and 22nd to screen the film and to hold Q&As. I had a chance to speak with Adam by phone about the making of the film and about his dad. I'll also be hosting the Q&A with him on September 22nd at the Carlsbad Village Theater. When Adam's father died last year before the film was finished, the documentary changed from being just about Spock to being about Spock, Leonard Nimoy, and about the relationship of a father and his son. The documentary uses archive footage, family photos and video, as well as new interviews with a diverse array of people. The film gives us insights into how the character of Spock evolved through old interviews intercut with new ones. Here, Leonard Nimoy talks with William Shatner about how the character of Spock changed from the pilot, in which Jeffrey Hunter played the captain, to the series in which Shatner took on the role of Captain James T. Kirk. One of the reasons for the shift in the Spock character when you came on board was because when I was working with Jeffrey Hunter, Jeffrey Hunter was a very internalized actor. There's an old joke about two actors preparing to play a scene, and one says to the other, what are you going to play in this scene? And the phone says, I'm playing nothing. The other one says, no, 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 you can't play nothing, I'm playing nothing. <laughs> so. Here's Jeffrey Hunter playing this quiet, internalized performance. Ah. And I felt the need to help drive something in opposition to that. Right, Otherwise, right. we're both playing nothing. Right, right, right. And when you came on board with your energy and a sense of humor and a twinkle in the eye, I was able to then become the core Spock. Has it occurred to you that there's a certain inefficiency in constantly questioning me on things you've already made up your mind about? It gives me emotional security. Leonard bouncing off of me could now dramatically be internal, allowing me to be external, and the two forces uh, made a, uh, an interesting combination. I prefer the concrete, the graspable, the provable. You'd make a splendid computer, Mr. Spock. That is very kind of you, Captain. In another interview, Nimoy credits his director with an important insight into Spock. There was a scene in which the ship was being threatened some outside problems, an outside dangerous force. And there was a lot of activity on the ship. The captain was saying, do such and such, press this button, do this, do warp three, get us out of here. Remember, so forth. Overloading, sir. And Spock had one word to say, and the word was fascinating. 
and we're looking at this thing on the screen, you know, and everybody else is reacting, oh, look at it, blah, 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 and I got caught up in that energy, and I said, fascinating. And the director, gave me a brilliant note, and said, be different, be the scientist, be detached. See it as something that's a curiosity rather than a threat. Fascinating. Well, a big chunk of the character was born right there. As a director, Adam Nimoy sometimes takes a playful tone in his documentary. Take this clip where art and life intersect on the Big Bang Theory TV show. Listen to this. I just received an email from Will Wheaton. Leonard Nimoy's son is working on a documentary that he started with his father before he passed away. It's about Mr. Spock and his impact on our culture. For the love of Spock, Adam Nimoy, Mark. We wanted to do something to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which was coming up in 2016. And a documentary about Spock had never really been produced before. I thought it was an interesting idea to create a film just focused on Spock, who he is, how he came about, and why he has continued to resonate for 50 years. All is as a part of the celebration of, of the anniversary of the original series. And the minute I suggested this to Dad, he was in. Justine, I um, just wanted to call and let you know how sorry I was to hear about your father. Hi, Ad, it's John. Just got, heard the news uh, about uh, Leonard. So sorry to hear that. Uh, I hope you're doing all right. And um, <clears throat> love you, Adam. Bye. After Dad died, it became clear that the film needed to include his life as well as the life of Mr. Spock. And that, in turn, led me on a journey of discovery about my relationship with my father. You obviously had great access to a lot of archive materials in terms of home movies and photos and things like that. What was it like going through all that to decide what to put in the movie? It was a great experience in that I was able to kind of keep close to my dad. You know, I was looking at all this film of my dad, interviews of him, and this is shortly after he had passed away. Uh, It was kind of a way to reminisce about his entire life and look back, and it was just a nice way to process kind of the grieving that I was sort of going through and and getting used to my life without my dad. At at first, it was really kind of like um, a supportive experience, and and then after a while, it became a daunting experience because we had to really sift through a lot of material to figure out what we were going to include in this film. How do you think the film might have been different if your dad had lived to see it completed? I started this film... When my dad was still alive, we were working on it together as a collaboration, and he was pretty clear that he wanted the film to be really only about Spock, uh, beginning to end, the life and legacy of Mr. Spock. He didn't really want to include anything about himself and his, his own career. My dad had a great sense of humility, and he didn't want this to be the Leonard Nimoy show because he was going to be making this film with me. So this film would have looked a lot different. It really would have been a completely Spock-centric film for an hour and a half or the hour and 50 minutes that it is at this point. One of the things that you put in the film that I thought was great was you have your dad reading the Variety review of Star Trek when it first premiered. The review that Variety gave us when we first went on the air in September of 1966. And I thought you'd enjoy hearing what what our show business Bible said about us the first week we went on the air. This was this was dated September. It appeared on September 14, 1966, just a little over 25 years ago. It said Star Trek with William Shatner, Leonard Nomoy. <laughs> Star Trek won't work. That's the opening line. 
Then it says, an incredible and dreary mess of confusion. <laughs> Trudged on for a long hour <laughs> with hardly any relief from violence, killings, hypnotic stuff, and a distasteful, ugly monster. <laughs> William Shatner, shh. <laughs> William Shatner appears wooden, it says. <laughs> I didn't say it, it says it here, right? I've never heard him accused of being accused of being wooden before. Yeah. Spock! Scotty! I need warp speed in four minutes, we're all dead. Then it says, the same goes for Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of naysayers. There was a lot of uh, obstacles in the way of Star Trek, even being a, acquired by the network NBC. And then they wanted to get rid of Spock. And there was a lot of uh, trepidation about how well those series would be received. So it's just very uh, telling and very, you know, it's a counterpoint to what happened. And it's nice to go back to see what people were thinking when it first premiered. And, and some of the establishment were not too enamored with the show and didn't see any potential for the show, including the trade papers, including uh, friends of my father. You know, there was, my dad was was nervous about putting on the ears and, and you know, and, and getting into the sci-fi show. He was a very serious actor. And there was just a lot of concern that the show would not be taken seriously. Well, I think it's great to include because I think Star Trek has become such a part of our culture that people forget when it first came out how it was being received. Yeah, I mean, there's also a misconception that it was a failure when it was first aired and then, you know, found its audience during syndication, which is not entirely the case. Star Trek was very popular and very competitive in its time slot when it premiered. A lot of people were watching Star Trek, uh, a lot of fans writing uh, mail to Mr. Spock. There was a lot of positive response. And the problem with Star Trek was that there were issues between uh, the producers, particularly Gene Roddenberry and the network, and Gene left the show by season three. And the network basically killed the show by moving it to a Friday night time slot when nobody's at home watching TV. There were no VCRs back then. I mean, it's kind of a death knell for TV shows because there's simply no one at home watching. So it was fairly successful then, but, but then it was a huge success, obviously, in the syndication market where local television stations were playing it five nights a week and on all weekends. So that's really when the... the uh, it became a, a, a kind of a cult following situation. You interview some fans at Star Trek conventions. What was that like speaking to some of these fans about your dad? Well, I love talking to fans about my dad. Uh, they're so effusive and they're warm and they're respectful and they're reverential and they're just so happy to have had Spock in their lives. I mean, you know, he's had a, a huge impact on people's lives and, and the fans are very vocal about it and very emotional about it. And it's, uh, it's also very comforting and heartwarming to hear that we're all a community of Trek fans and Spock fans and Leonard fans. So it's, I, I love it. It's, it's a wonderful experience to be out there uh, mingling with these people and, and sharing stories with them. So it's a, it's a really great experience for me. You interviewed one fan who I've seen at a number of conventions, the really tall Spock. And he l seems to look a lot like your dad, too. Was that an odd experience? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen a number of people who have, you know, been in spot guard, but uh, th- uh, that gentleman in particular, whose name escapes me right now, I'm so sorry, I think his name is Robert, and he's just amazing. He's articulate, he's a diehard fan, he's at all the conventions, he wears various Starfleet uniforms from different time periods. Uh, the guy's amazing, and I think he's just uh, very representative of, of what a lot of people feel and about Spock. I mean, you know, a lot of people just want to emulate and be Spock, and myself included to some degree. I think he's just kind of like represented at the tip of the iceberg of a lot of people who really enjoy the cosplay, this whole phenomenon of cosplay, costume play, which has kind of been instigated by Star Trek. And it's nice at the conventions, it's a way to cut loose and really walk in the shoes of these characters that people have admired for so many years. One of the other archive clips that you dig up is your dad singing that Hobbit song. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him, Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Captain? Talk a little bit about how you did incorporate a clip like that into the movie. The thing is, The Hobbit, Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, is uh, one of the kitschier moments in my dad's uh, long recording career. (laughs) You know, um, I I have been listening to a lot of my music while we were making the film, and a lot of it's really wonderful, easy listening, lovely stuff. And some of it is like, Dad, what were you thinking? And I remember when The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins came out, my sister and I were scratching our heads because it was just so kitschy, so off the wall out there. A lot of Star Trek is very serious drama, excellent you know, storytelling, and some of it is a wink of the eye, tongue of the cheek, uh, kitschy stuff. It's very campy, and I just thought it would be fun uh, to kind of uh, meld these two, things, these two elements together of, of playing this funny song, uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise in a lighter moment. And we just kind of brought those two strains together in that in that moment. It was actually it was a sequence that was initially created by uh, Luke, one of our uh, editors, and he showed it to us, and we couldn't stop laughing. We just thought it was terrific, and we cut it in the film as it was presented to us. So I think it really works, and people are responding to it. And you also, there's a moment, too, where your dad was talking about uh, looking at a publicity photo where they had changed his eyebrows and removed the points of his ears. I saw this photograph of myself as Spock, and it didn't look right. Something struck me strange. And the closer I looked, the more I realized that they had straightened out my eyebrows, made them look normal, and they had taken off the tips off the ears. The network said, we, we are very dependent on the, on the numbers in the Bible Belt and they will not accept in their homes a character who looks devilish with these pointed ears. Are you casting me in the role of Satan? Not at all, Captain. Is there anyone on this ship who even remotely looks like Satan? I am not aware of anyone who fits that description, Captain. No, Mr. Spock, I didn't think you would. I mean, it was a big issue about that with the network. The network was very nervous about having Mr. Spock on a, on a TV show that they were sponsoring. And, uh, you know, NBC at the time was very conservative. They were the network of Bob Hope specials and Sing Along with Mitch and Andy Williams. I mean, a very clean family-oriented fair. And they had a lot of support in the South. They had a lot of markets in the South, and they were very worried about losing that, that market share. I mean, they took on Star Trek to, to, to get a little edgier because they were in third place. 
among the three networks, but they were nervous. So some of the original material, the press material, they, they doctored, airbrushed out so that Spock didn't look so demonic. But, you know, then it turned out uh, when Spock became popular, their attitude was, well, we love Spock. We've always loved Spock. Give us more Spock stories. You know, Dad thought that was very ironic that at first they were like, get rid of Spock, and then they embraced him. Did you discover anything about your dad while you were making the film in terms of the, the interviews you did with some of the people or just going through archive material? Yeah, I think the most important thing that, that had impact on me that I discovered about my dad is, is the impact that he had on people, on fans. Uh, particularly when we interviewed a year ago in September of last year, our production crew went up to Vancouver to interview the new cast of Star Trek in this uh, new J.J. Abrams-produced reimagining of Star Trek. Mine is a very different Spock than your dad's. I was really fortunate to be able to explore even more than your dad, because as entertainment evolved, as narration evolved, as storytelling evolved over the intervening decades between when he created the role and when I assumed it, um, I think that uh, it, it opened up a little bit more space for us to get in and, and, and play with that. Mr. Spock. Sharing that with him and, uh, and discussing it and, and exploring it through the context of our personal relationship, that was probably one of the most creatively satisfying aspects of, of assuming a role that had already been established so firmly and created so boldly, uh, no pun intended. And all the cast members individually told me the same thing, which was they were so reverential about my dad, they were so honored that he participated in the new incarnation of Star Trek beginning in Star Trek 09, directed by J.J. Abrams, and to a lesser degree in Star Trek Into Darkness. And they felt very much that his, even though my dad was not with them on the third film in Star Trek Beyond, they really felt that his spirit was with them. They just felt a sense of his, um, his energy and inspiration. And it really struck me, I and mean, it was very, just lovely to hear them say that. I, I was just amazed, each one of them, one by one, which the impact of my dad's involvement with the new incarnation was so powerful on them and was still a great source of inspiration to them. And I was pretty amazed by, by hearing this from them. It was wonderful. In that series of interviews, you um, actually seemed to open up a lot to Zachary Quinto talking about your dad and, and some of the difficult times you had with them. Was that kind of a planned thing or was that something that just evolved from that interview? Well, no, I mean, it was something that we had discussed that we were going to anticipate doing. The, the extent of the depth of the interview was, we, there was no limitation. And I had, I sat with Zachary for, uh, we had a couple hours together. And uh, we knew that there was certain things we wanted to cover, both on his, his side, me interviewing him about Dad, and then mm -hmm. him turning the tables and then interviewing me. So, you know, I wanted to talk about this personal side, my relationship with Dad, with Zachary, because Zachary was you know, almost like a surrogate son to my dad. They had a very close personal relationship. And it just seemed to make sense that, that he would be the guy that I would open up to about some of the, the personal ups and downs that I had with my father and, and how we reconciled and, and uh, became close again. It just made sense that it, I would want to reveal that information to him or with him talking to me about it. I, I just, it still, it just overwhelms me now that we could get to that point yeah. where he could be my go-to guy. Yeah. And in the next 18 months of my life with Martha, which were, you know, probably the most challenging possibly in my entire life, my dad and Susan were there every step of the way to support me and keep me going. And all that personal stuff about my dad was something that really came along later on during the making of the film. A lot of people felt that I really needed to include my own story, my own point of view, my own experience with Spock and my dad. 
that would add a whole dimension to the film. And so the film is a balance between really Spock-centric, mostly about Mr. Spock, and then about the life and legacy of Leonard Nimoy, and then about my relationship with Spock and, and my dad. You mentioned that when you started this, your dad was alive and it was going to be a much more Spock-centric story. So how did it feel letting this evolve into this much more personal and intimate kind of story? Well, it just seemed to make sense over time. I mean, we were through a lot of the material, and it was actually my stepmother, Susan, who really pushed the idea that I include my own perspective, my own story, and the ups and downs with my dad. Uh, particularly because we had a happy ending. We were able to reconnect with one another through, in our case, through recovery, through the tools of recovery, 12-step recovery that we had both uh, independently entered into. And Susan felt that it would make the film unique. There's so many great documentary filmmakers who could make a very good film about Mr. Spock or Leonard Nimoy. Nobody could really tell the, the unique you know, side of my story, my perspective, uh, and my relationship with them. And, uh, and, so, and there was a, a chorus of people you know, starting with our my partners in this project who who uh, joined that that chorus to say this makes more sense. It's going to be it's going to resonate with people um, if we tell this side of the story. It'll give a whole new dimension to my dad and the, the experience of being in a celebrity family that most people don't know about. So that's how that all came about. I think it, you know I I think we struck a good balance there. It's been very satisfying and great process for me to work through. And judging from the reaction, I think I think we've done a pretty good job of, of keeping that balance in, in play. At what point did you really fully become aware that you had a famous father? I mean, was it something you always kind of were conscious of, or was there a point where you kind of suddenly realized not everybody lives this same kind of life or has a parent who works on television? Well, it, it happened when we when the fans started reacting to him, both in terms of the, the uh, deluge of mail that came to our house, sacks and sacks of mail, addressed to Spock or, you know, Mr. Nimoy or Leonard Nimoy. Our, fam- our family activities, you know, was answering fan mail. Personal life was gone. Yeah, I mean, it, it started happening be- very fast. And uh, I'll show you how naive I was. At that time, I still had my phone listed in the phone book and my <laughs> address. And it was all, you know, I'd never dreamed that there was going to be any that kind of impact because I'd been on television before mm-hmm. and movies before, and I was listed in the phone book. It didn't matter to me. We started getting a lot of fan mail, not only fan mail, but fans coming to our door, knocking down the door. Uh, we started getting people driving by the house and parking and, and ripping at the shrubbery to have a souvenir, you know, and taking my grass and my leaves. And whatever. Some of them would knock on the door and ask to be invited in to visit. And then being on the street with him, you know, we couldn't, I couldn't spend any more father-son time alone with him in public anymore because we'd be mobbed. He took me to a carnival in West L.A. near our home one Saturday uh, morning and uh, immediately was, we were uh, surrounded by people. We, we it was... Uh, crazy. We had to leave immediately. We, got, we, you know, we made a beeline for our car and drove away. And that was when I really realized what we were in for, and that, you know, that our lives had changed forever. I was 10 years old at the time. It was a shocking experience for me. And then I was with him at Wallach's Music City in Hollywood. He was signing records. He put out his first record, Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space. The place was packed with people. It was just, it, I was in shock. I just didn't, you know, really didn't understand the magnitude of what he had accomplished with this role. There are also photos of you uh, on the set with your dad where you actually had like some Spock ears put on. What was it like for you to go to the set and be with your dad? I really enjoyed the experience because it was just so much fun watching them make the show. Uh, This was the summer of 66 before it even aired. Um, I, I maintain I am one of the first Trekkies. I was just, it was so much fun. It was so exciting. 
to run around on the set and to watch them film the show. I was, you know, there's key scenes from six or seven episodes that I remember watching them film. It was fantastic to see Dad in character. You know, he, I couldn't really connect with him while he was Spock. He was he had a very distant, you know, thing going on. He was trying always trying to stay in character. But I really, really enjoyed the experience. It was a very exciting time. It's the first time Dad had starred in a TV show. I've been watching his career as a kid, watching him appear in episodes of Broken Arrow and Outer Limits and Gunsmoke, Man from Uncle. These are all shows I was a fan of, uh, and that was fun. But seeing him on Star Trek was a whole new level of, of excitement for the whole family, really. Was getting the ears put on something special for you that one day, or did that happen on a number of occasions? No, that just happened on one day. I was on the set, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, follow me. And I went into the makeup trailer, and Freddie Phillips, who did my dad's makeup every day, I knew Freddie very well because I used to sit in there and watch Dad get made up. And he cut my hair, and he, he gave me pointed sideburns. He shaved my eyebrows. He took a pair of Dad's ears and glued them on me. Then they walked me into a turbo lift on, on the set of the bridge, and on cue, they opened the doors, and I walked out and greeted my father. It was I, I remember it all vividly, believe me. You don't forget that kind of thing, even at 10 years old. Wonderful experience, one of the highlights of my life. I was so proud to to be there and uh, what Dad was doing with Star Trek. And I'm just so lucky to have been such a, you know, a close part of it in that, those early stages. And what was it like going back and interviewing some of the cast members and from the original Star Trek and talking to them about the that whole period? Well, you know, I feel a, a certain uh, amount of kinship to those people. They're like family to me, and it was lovely. They're just, they were wonderful. All of them were just willing and very giving, very generous with their comments, very loving about uh, what they said about my dad. It was a great experience to kind of walk through memory lane with them. Uh, I think they enjoyed it as well. It was a real you know, real kind of uh, give and take with them. And I had prepared a number of issues that I wanted to talk about with everybody. And they were just so gracious. And uh, it's just, it's such a great feeling. It's so hard to really describe. It's just, you know, reverberated. We've had a connection for half a century with these people. Very unique. And I just feel, I was really honored that, that they all were so willing to help me with this project. I love the fact that you included Neil deGrasse Tyson in the interviews because it gave this perspective of how Star Trek and Spock affected people outside of just pure fandom or the entertainment industry. Now, for me, I knew I liked science before Star Trek. So, so Spock and I resonated, I think. But I wonder if the slow but real appreciation for what science is and why it matters that I see manifesting today, whether it owes its origin to that series, to that character. And how these, the show and Spock inspired people to be interested in the future and in science and in the possibility of all sorts of things. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the objectives of, of the film, For the Love of Spock, my documentary about Spock, is to explore why he has continued to resonate for half a century. What is it about him that, that people find interesting or inspiring? Now, you know, or that they can connect to. One of the things that was a big part of my experience interviewing fans about Spock was this, the inspiration that he brought to so many scientists. A lot of people, uh, we've interviewed a number of people at, at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Many people said they owe their career to Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock inspired them to get involved in the space program or in the sciences or in the medical profession. My God, I, I can't tell you how many doctors I've met who have you know, little shrines to Spock in their offices. It's just crazy, or, you know, or Star Trek in general. And this is one of the reasons why Spock has, has been kept alive. It's just a, a number of people 
for generation after generation have been inspired by him in various ways in the sciences, you know, and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is a, a big spokesperson for popular science right now, and he's a, he's a wonderful, articulate man to interview, and it's just interesting getting his perspective because these are the reasons why Spock continues to be present and relevant, even now, 50 years later. And now that the film's done and you've presented it, what do you feel most proud of about the finished product? Well, I feel most proud of the fact that the fans seem to be very happy with the product that we came up with. You know, we, we started this film, For Love and Spock really began as a Kickstarter crowdfunding project in which we appealed to the fan base to help us finance this film. This is a very expensive proposition. To interview, we had over 30 original interviews that we had to conduct, and we had to license a lot of material. We have about a, a half an hour of Star Trek material clips in there that we use to comment on the evolution of Spock. I am so happy uh, that it's been so well-received, frankly. I'm just I'm elated that we did a job that seems to have satisfied people on a number of levels, that we really did find the balance. This took a lot of editorial work, and we had a, a lot of friends and colleagues who, whose opinions we trusted come in and look at the film and give us feedback, because we really wanted to keep a balance between, again, keeping Spock at the forefront, but then including my dad's story as an artist and all the various ways he expressed his himself artistically, whether it was the recording artist, the photographer, the director, the actor. One of my idols was Lon Chaney, who was called the man of a thousand faces in the movie because he changed characters so drastically from one performance to another. And I considered myself that kind of a person. I got a makeup department, the wardrobe department, get something together and find a character. And then weaving into all this, my experience, my perspective with uh, Spock and my dad. And we seem to have accomplished that in a way that is satisfying to people. And that was our objective to begin with. And that's probably the most satisfying aspect of this entire project. Well, I want to thank you for introducing me to all the stage work he did. I was not aware of how many things he had done in stage, especially Tevya and uh, Man in the Glass Booth. Uh, yeah, big part of his, uh, my dad's artistic career, big part of it, um, very much a challenge to him, an ability, uh, an opportunity for him to expand on his craft as an actor, opportunities brought by the success of Spock in Star Trek, spent uh, the, a good solid decade in the 70s performing in probably a dozen uh, productions, really um, exciting work, a lot of people came to see him, whether they came... You know, a lot of people probably bought tickets to see Mr. Spock, but what they saw was our, were, were outstanding performances by Leonard Nimoy, a man who was really at the height of his craft. I mean, I loved it, you know, following him around all the, to all those productions. My the family, we were all together going, you know, on the road with him or, or in New York watching him, and um, it was a really exciting time as well. And you're going to be coming out here to San Diego to present two screenings of the film. Uh, right, to introduce the film, uh, to lead a question and answer of the film. And I'm really looking forward. It's always fun to present the film to fans and to be there listening to feedback, uh, taking questions, and getting their responses. So I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I look forward to having you come out here, and I'll be able to host one of those uh, Q&As. So I look forward to meeting you. I look forward to meeting you in person, too. Thank you. For the Love of Spock screens as part of a special event sponsored by the San Diego Jewish Film Festival. For ticket information, go to sdcjc.org slash sdjff. From this warm, intimate, real documentary, let's take a wild leap to the fake documentary world created by Operation Avalanche. 
The film begins with some newsreel footage of President John F. Kennedy talking about the space race. For we meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we know that's real, right? But what follows is meant to be fake. Hello, my name is Special Agent Matt Johnson, and what you're about to watch is a film detailing the connections between Stanley Kubrick and the film Dr. Strangelover, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Conclusion, Stanley Kubrick is not a spy. Thank you. Are there uh, any questions? That covers it. Uh, what's next? Actually, Director Brackett, I'd like to make a pitch for major research to be moved onto Operation Zipper next. What the hell are you doing? You guys are trying to put a field agent inside NASA posing as a scientist. And Agent Williams and I don't think it will work. This mole if he's there, could have been at NASA since the early 60s. He's going to spot one of our guys pretending to be a rocket scientist instantly. We need to send people who are going to look like they have no idea what's going on. Us, as a documentary film crew, we can pretend that we're from the National Education Television Network filming the definitive Apollo documentary. We're there to chart the race to the moon. Smart idea. No Soviet mole's going to let anyone openly film them. Well, Director Brackett, we're filming you right now through the window. Okay, so all that about the CIA, a mole in NASA, and America's inability to land on the moon before the Russians, that's all fake, right? That's what filmmaker Matt Johnson is interested in creating, a film where people keep asking themselves which part is real and which is fake. That's complicated even further by the fact that Johnson and his cohorts infiltrated NASA and Shepard and Studios to shoot footage that is used in the film. Operation Avalanche is a found footage film, but it's one that reinvigorates the tired gimmick with true inspiration and craft. Imagine if Christopher Guest made a mockumentary about a paranoid conspiracy plot and then add in a dash of Quentin Tarantino's passion for cinema, and you might get an inkling of what this film is like. I began my interview with Johnson by asking how the film began and how he decided that sneaking into NASA would be a necessary part of the production process. Well, I mean, that was a means to an end. At the very beginning, we said we wanted to make a movie about the CIA faking the moon landing, and that's it. But we wanted to tell the story about the guy who filmed that footage. And we thought, oh, this will be easy because we're independent filmmakers, and we knew we weren't going to have a lot of money, so we thought we could just shoot it all, you know, in Toronto, which is where we're from. But very quickly, we realized that in order for this movie to have any veracity whatsoever, we were going to need to shoot on location, and that meant 
that we were going to have to shoot at NASA because we couldn't rebuild those sets. And so really that came out of necessity, us, uh, us sneaking in there and filming and filming the movie at NASA. So what was that like? It was super scary, and, uh, and we definitely didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, it was I, I, exactly as you would imagine. We, uh, the way that we got there was that we were film students uh, at, at the time in Toronto. I guess we, we, up until recently we were, and we asked if we could come down there to shoot documentary footage for a movie that we were making about the Apollo program. So it wasn't even that different than the cover our characters use in the movie to get into NASA, saying that they're part of an NET documentary film crew. And so that, that's how we did it. And then when we were there, we just shot as much as we could. I understand you have a bit of a reputation for pulling some like video prank kind of things. So in making this, was this more about kind of what you could get away with? Or did you really like want to say something about this potential conspiracy theory? Oh, well, you know what? As I said, it really was a means to an end. I, I mean, I, I, if we could have made this movie without doing that, I think we would have been in a heartbeat. I think a lot of the the sort of like stunt style filmmaking that my friends and I do is is often because we're trying to think of telling a story in a new way or doing something that you couldn't normally do in a film. And it has less to do with the actual act of, of doing it. And that stuff, we don't really enjoy it. It's really like agony inducing and, and quite high stress. So if there's a way to do it without having to, you know, sneak around and do all this duplicitous stuff, that'd be awesome. But that said, you do get a certain feeling and, and excitement on camera from 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 filming this way. I mean, it is it, it's not lost on me that that the characters in our movie have broken into NASA in the exact same way that the real filmmakers have broken into NASA, and you kind of get to feel that a little bit. Um, and that's something that you know you just couldn't have in a movie that had the resources to not need to do that, which I appreciate a lot. But no, the idea of, of doing it just to do it, no way. I mean, I wish I was that brash, but uh, no, no, that's not why we did it. Now, a lot of what I've been reading about the film is focusing on the fact that it's about a fake moon landing. But I have to say that in watching the film and having gone to film school myself, you guys seem to get a lot of joy out of just the filmmaking process and about kind of highlighting how good Kubrick was at what he was doing. And so is that part of what motivated you to make the film? Well, absolutely. And our first film, it was exactly the same. The the movie we made before this was called The Dirties. And it was about, again, very eager wannabe filmmakers, which I think is really important, that that distinction of of really wanting to be a, or being a wannabe and really being a neophyte and not knowing what you're doing. Um, and exploring the process of filmmaking and storytelling as a method of self-discovery and a, and a way of kind of breaking new ground at a personal level through a, through a movie, which I think is what both these characters in The Dirties and in Operation Avalanche are doing. Um, and that is, you're dead on, completely tied to the experience of being a film student and looking up to these giants and being like, oh man, how does Steven Spielberg do that? How does... Orson Welles do that, seeing these almost mythical uh, filmmakers and wanting to emulate them, however pathetically, is is a really important part of, uh, of why we make these movies the way we do. All right, it's called front screen projection. Stanley Kubrick can fake any environment he wants by projecting it through a semi-transparent mirror and then onto a gigantic silver screen. Then he films the entire scene through the same mirror. 
at a 90 degree angle to the projector. What it winds up doing is creating images where you can't tell where the stage stops and the fake photographic background begins. You have an infinite depth of field into environments that exist completely in two-dimensional space. We can do the same thing with the lunar surface photography that NASA is taking on the Apollo missions. Movie special effects can be very convincing, especially when you don't know you're watching a movie. The plan is to rent a film studio in Texas, hire a crew, and have them build our own lunar lander. We'll mix this practical set piece with Kubrick's projection technique and presto, the illusion that man is walking on the moon. Because that excitement when he's trying to explain, like, Kubrick invented this front screen projection. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. Seemed... And, and that's all real because, I mean, I, I, I knew admittedly a bit about that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the movie really is me discovering how to fake the moon landing. Like, all that stuff is real. Like, I didn't know any of that stuff, really, before we started shooting. So, uh, hopefully it shows. It does, and it also, though, seems like you're, it's like you're taking advantage of an opportunity to also remind people how great Kubrick was. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, the, 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 the idea that these, these know-nothings can just steal, you know, 5% of his technique and then successfully pull off a moon landing, I think is testament to that. I have to confess, I recently just saw the new Blair Witch film, which only reconfirmed for me how frustrated I often get with found footage films. And then I see your film, which reminds me that, oh, it's just a tool and it can be used well because you totally sucked me in. And the quality, like the color of the film alone, (laughs) just kind of placed it in this different time frame. And you did a great job of that. Yeah, it was a long process to do that. Hopefully it seems effortless, but that was probably one of the hardest things that we did. We went through so many stocks and about a year of tests between three different departments to figure out how to make the movie look like that. Well, it pays off. And the fact that you did that, I think, is part of why the film works, too. Thank you very much. The film also reminded me a bit of films that came out, I think it it was like in the 80s or so, that paranoid cinema, that kind of like Parallax View and Winter Kills and those kind of conspiracy films. Was that something you were tapping into? Yeah, we stole as much as we could. Mostly Manchurian Candidate, which you'll see there's a poster of in uh, in the character's office, but those are dead on. Even Capricorn One, uh, which is a movie about faking the Mars landing, uh, has a similar tone, and we stole dialogue and, and, and moments from each of those films. I mean, that that is kind of uh, in terms of a narrative reference. That's what that's what we were doing. We were we were taking those those Pakula movies and uh, and those sort of paranoia thriller movies and trying to put our characters in the middle of one without meaning to be. So, in referencing these other films, what are you bringing to it that's new, and what do you want to say that's different from those films? Here's what we we all loved about about that era of cinema is that it was somehow able to criticize the current government, the institutions of power uh, in America, and without being direct, without directly naming names or being unbelievably... I mean, Dr. Strangelove is an incredible example of a movie that seems sort of light and almost like a, a, a comedy, obviously, but was being unbelievably critical of the, the very, very current political state of the United States. And it just seems like we don't really have that anymore. It, it seems like modern movies 
when they do that, they're, they're unbelievably didactic. There's, they just don't, it, they're not accessible in the way those old films were. And so we thought, oh, how can we make a movie today that has that same institutional criticism without falling into that trap of being, without being didactic, so to use the word twice. But that's one of the reasons why we settled on making a movie about the moon landing, because it was far enough in the past that people don't take it seriously. I mean, whether, I mean, there are still people who believe the moon landing was fake for whatever crazy reason, but even if you don't, I think there's still a way that you can see this film as a criticism of an institution like the CIA without necessarily believing the story that we're telling you. Is it also pointing to the fact that we have come to a point in our technology where it does seem like it's easy to fake things or not even trying to fake things? I mean, people go on the Internet and search for something and find it and just accept whatever they get as truth. Is it also kind of a comment on that? Well, media literacy, I actually think, is at an all-time high. you're, you're You're right in that, I would say, sort of an average citizen is looking at YouTube videos like that, like a very famous, like Leroy, like World of Warcraft video, and being like, oh my God, isn't this incredible? Like, this, the reality of this is so great, and even though it's a video game, um, without realizing, oh no, that's completely faked. Like, that's just, that, that's manufactured to, just to make me laugh. I think that, I mean, I'm making two points here, and they're actually contradicting one another, but the, in general, I actually think that, like, the people who are into this kind of stuff, their literacy is through the roof. Like, they can spot fake stuff a mile away, and it's almost impossible to fool them. While as, you know, my parents or people from a few generations, although not everybody, are fooled daily by by viral videos, by videos, by media footage. And it's something worth talking about. At, at our film school, where we graduate from, where we just graduated from, I should say, in Toronto, there's a great program where they, they combine an MBA and a film degree, and they talk about... Uh, media literacy and the understanding of the creation of images now being the new form of business intelligence, like that being a major cornerstone in the MBA program, is understanding what images are doing and what so-called official news footage can actually do as a business tool which I think is very telling. That's really fascinating. <laughs> and it, it, I'm half happy to hear that and half thinking like, oh, but they could also use that to then fool the public. <laughs> no, I think that's their point. I think that that's is kind of, <laughs> I think that's kind of the, 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 the aim of it. Do you also get a slight sense of satisfaction as a filmmaker at the ability of someone to be able to fool you, whether it is in a fake news story or just in a film being able to suck you in and make you believe in this complete, you know, world that you're creating? Well, you know, they're different, right? I mean, uh, when you watch a Hollywood movie that is really captivating, then uh, that is a very different feeling than watching a news story. That you know, Did you ever watch... Um, uh, who's that guy that went on local news stations doing yo-yo tricks? Man, it's so funny. I can't remember his name, but uh, the guy's a genius. But uh, for Zim Zam uh, yo-yos, so so sad. I can't remember this dude because he's real. Like I love him. Um, and like that, I think is a very different type of feat. Or like the Sasha Baron Cohen tricks, where he's able to trick people in the public into thinking that he's real. Uh, he's different than you know a, a, film, a great filmmaker lulling you into believing that. Um, what they're doing, or, or that, that a story is really happening, even though it's clearly fake. But I love both of them. And in fact, that I think is very, very new, the, 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 the first one of those, which is sort of like the fake authentic. 
like the idea that something is real, but really it's being manufactured when it's used for comedy or anything like that. That's why shows like The Office, I think, really took off because people are so interested in that authentic truth or something that really is authentic. But in that manufactured way, that's why we're making these movies like this, because we want the audience to think what they're seeing is real, but at the back of their head know that it's not, and that space is really, really interesting. At least for me as an audience member, when I'm seeing something like that, my favorite movie ever made is F for Fake by Orson Welles, which is a, a documentary or a fake documentary about a lot of this stuff, and I just love that. I love when a filmmaker can do that to you, can tell you what you think is the truth, but then you realize it's a lie, and then you really realize what's the difference. That is a brilliant movie. And that reminds me, do you feel that your film is kind of a con about a con, like a sort of thing? Of course. Well, why do you think we put all that effort into bringing Stanley Kubrick back from the dead? Stanley Kubrick is making a new movie about the moon landing. And I'm willing to bet that we can use the special effects that he's doing there to do this. Okay, but can't just walk onto the film set. He has two NASA scientists advising him. We're going to go and say we're going to interview them. Do you see what's going on here? Kubrick is getting NASA to make sure that his space movie looks like real space. And so we're going to use his space movie to make sure the real space movie looks like space. It's no coincidence that that sequence of us of me going to see Stanley Kubrick is shot almost exactly the same way as the moon landing footage. Black and white, very, very high contrast, very, very narrow frame of view. You can barely see what's going on. It, we're, we're, we're trying to create a microcosm within the film of the greater hoax, which is what we're trying to say was propagated on, on, uh, on, on the public. So, yeah, of course. Of course, we love that stuff. I love that you did have that camera inside the bag, so it does narrow your field of vision. And it, sadly, I only saw it on a screen, or I didn't get to see it in a theater yet. But I can imagine, like, the whole audience kind of leaning to one side to try and peer around the frame of vision that you're giving them to try and peek and see more or something. Yeah, exactly. But but again, it's such a great trick because it's set up as a, the way that they're hiding their camera. But really what we're doing is we're hiding the image from the audience. Like It's tough to tell where you stand as an audience member. Are you in on it or are you being fooled? Yeah, it was. I really would look forward to seeing it in a theater, though, because I think it does engage the audience in a slightly different way than most films do in, in terms of those kind of tools and tricks you use. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, most of them are stolen, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, stealing is, you know, Shakespeare never had an original plot. Does your film harken back in some way or or its roots somehow in like those old candid camera TV shows? Kind of. The, I mean, we the difference is that we're not trying to make fun of people. We're trying to get performances from people that are completely and 100% real. And that's very different than putting somebody in an odd situation in the hopes that they react in bizarre or uncomfortable way. We never tried to do that. I mean, the, the, the staff we talked to at NASA, the guy who tells us where on Earth we can find places that look like the moon, that, that, the reason we do that kind of stuff is because we don't want to work with actors who are going to have to sort of fumble all this very technical dialogue. And it's so much more interesting, again, sort of playing into the what's real and what's not real, to do that with real people. Uh, but the intention is not at all we may be stealing the form and the format and a lot of the 
the rules, quote unquote, from from sort of candid camera shows or hidden camera prank shows or reality television. But the aim is completely different. We're we're trying to uh, just capture people's real behavior um, as opposed to making fun of them. So what do you hope people kind of walk away from your film with? What impact do you hope it has? I can only talk about what I was hoping that it would do for me, which is sort of tell a story about my own personal ambition and where that is probably going to lead me. Like, like that's what I'm trying to do with these movies. And my friends is sort of the same way, like where we're sort of working out what it's like to actually do these things. In terms of an audience, I mean, you're a great example. You went to film school and are getting all these things from this movie just in terms of form that you know, 99% of audiences are not even going to touch on. I mean, for young filmmakers like us, I'm hoping they see it and they go, wow, I could do that. Or, wow, I didn't know you're allowed to do that. For film historians or people who like old movies, I hope that they will sort of see the connection between movies then and movies now. But all this stuff is like so pretentious. I, if people just watch the movie and have fun watching it, that's, that's really all we want. We put all this other stuff in it because it's exciting and funny, really, um, to us as friends. Yeah, there is, from my point of view, there was nothing pretentious about it. And I, being somebody who loves movies, I just enjoyed like the references to <laughs> to other films and to just the craft of filmmaking. Well, then, at least with you, we we we, uh, we were okay. There seemed to be a lot of challenges in terms of making the film. What was the most difficult thing? I, I'm also thinking of the, you have that car chase at the end that's done in almost one take or one take. That was actually easier than, than it probably looks because there are no special effects outside of the bullet holes. That was just The challenge was just being willing to drive like that in an uncontrolled way and, and being risky. But actually shooting it was, was easy because you know what you see is what you get. You roll the camera and drive like a maniac, and then that's that's the footage you get. You could you could have shot that scene with your you know with your friend if you wanted to just just roll the camera in the back seat and go for it. But but in terms of actual challenges, it was all narrative. It would be like going to a place like NASA, shooting a bunch of footage, and then really really trying to figure out what footage served the story. And I know that's not like a very exciting answer, but. That really was what challenged us, so, was figuring out what, what we could use. So what percentage of the film was kind of stuff you got where you had not as much control and stuff that you had actually scripted? Well, we didn't script anything, but um, in terms of things that were completely uncontrollable, it was probably 25%. About a quarter of the movie is completely like we just got it by accident, and then 75% with stuff that we wrote around the 25% that we got by accident. And so what do you have uh, coming up next after this? We're making a television series in Toronto with Spike Jones called Nirvana the Band the Show that is really worth checking out. It's crazy. It's basically doing all the things that we did in this movie except in a modern comedy show, and it's about two musicians trying to get famous, and it comes out in January. Great. I'll look for it. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I really appreciated the film. Yeah, it was great talking to you. It's like a leap. It's like a jump. And this is a leap forward for... For everything. ...next evolutionary step. A leap forward in science. For humanity. Exactly. This is good. 
Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. That was filmmaker and actor Matt Johnson talking about his film Operation Avalanche that's opening in theaters. I highly recommend checking it out, as well as seeking out the new documentary For the Love of Spock. Coming up in October will be a month-long focus on horror and on expanding how we define that often maligned genre. There will be new interviews as well as some from the archives. And just a reminder, Cinema Junkie is a listener-supported show from KPBS in San Diego. We can't do this without you listening and without people like yourself who choose to also support the show with a donation. So, if you like the show and want to help make sure that it'll be around in the future, go to kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie and show your financial support. If you're looking for something a little cheaper, just go to iTunes and leave us a nice review. That won't cost you anything but a minute of your time, and it's just as important. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.